0: Um, As I begin, I want to share a couple of stories of some bad contracts that people sign. Uh, One was a guy by the name of Ronald Wayne. You've probably never heard of him. You've undoubtedly heard the company that he co-founded. It's called Apple. And uh, he was actually the third co-founder with Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, the famous duo. The reason why you don't know Ronald Wayne is because he sold his 10% stake uh, two weeks after the company began. He was a lot older than both of the Steves, and so he brought wisdom and maybe some legitimacy to this new company. he was afraid uh, that he would, his various assets would be seized if the business was going to fail. And so he sold his stake in return for $800 in uh, 1976. Um, so that wasn't, you know, maybe double today. I don't know, but still not that much money. Uh, You might laugh because a year later, to make it worse, he received a further payment of $1,500 for agreeing to forfeit the right to any future claims against Apple because it had just restructured as a corporation. Now, based on the information available at the time, you can empathize with his decision. He was risk adverse. He had a lot more to lose than the other two did. Uh, Unfortunately for him, Apple would become the most valuable company in the entire world, and his 10% stake today is roughly estimated to be worth, worth about 80 billion dollars. He is still alive by the way and so uh, to add further insult to that however was in the 1990s he chose to sell his original copy of the contract he signed with Apple at an auction for 500 dollars to a memorabilia dealer. That same contract was sold in 2011 for 1.6 million dollars. So he got the short end of the stick. Here's one more. Um, uh, it's a story of a Viager agreement. I don't know how to say their names exactly. They're French, so I'll just stick with their first names. Uh, between this man named Andre and a woman named Jean. Now, a Viager, a Viager agreement, uh, it's not really that popular, but it's something that actually still happens in France, where basically you would buy, you would, it's a method of buying a property where one party agri- agrees to buy words, house or, or land or property for a reduced fee, but can only take possession when that person dies. And so there would be an initial lump sum payment and then a monthly fee that you would continue to pay to the current landlord until they die. And then you can move in and take over their property. Um, Only a small percentage of deals that are, are done this way, but still they actually are still happening. And effectively what you are doing, if you're the person buying the new property, is you are taking a bet on how long the counterparty is going to live. Right? The, leader, the less they live, the less you end up paying. And so uh, Jean, in this particular arrangement, happened in 1965. Uh, Jean was 90 years old. And André agreed to buy her apartment in Marseille in Marseille for 19, uh, 1965. His monthly payment was in the region of $500, which was significant even back then. But the property was worth a lot more than that. And so it left him a plenty of headroom against the value of the property. Unfortunately for André... Jean went on to become the world's oldest living person, eventually dying 32 years later at the age of 122 years old. Not only that, but she outlived Andre, who sadly died in 1995 and so was never actually able to live in the apartment. To make it even worse, uh, the terms of the agreement stipulated that his wife was obliged to keep paying the monthly fee even after Andre had died. And so estimates suggest that he, the payments made to Jean for her apartment totaled more than double its value, and he never got to live there. So that is not exactly the kind of contract that you might want to sign. I share those stories because today, as we jump back into Genesis, we are looking at the first explicit covenant God makes with humanity in the Bible. And the question we're going to be looking at this morning is this, is what is in God's fine print? All right, what is in the agreement that God is making with Noah and his family and humanity that we should pay attention to? What is he actually saying in the first covenant that God makes with humans? That's what we'll be looking at this morning, what's in God's fine print. And so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one around you. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. So Genesis chapter 8, I think will be in page 6. And so you can go ahead and turn there. Now, we've taken a short break, and so now we're hopping back into Genesis. We're not going to do a big recap because we've gone over a lot. Uh, But where we are today is the story of Noah and the flood and the ark. We are uh, entering back into Genesis. This is after the flood has occurred. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives have left the ark. They are getting off the ark. They survive in God's grace, uh, the flood of what happened. And so now we're going to pick up the story, hoping and looking for the redeemer who's going to make all wrong things right. God has brought judgment to evil and sin in the world. So hopefully now, maybe now, things might be different. And so we're going to pick up the story, Genesis chapter 8, starting in verse 20. Here's what it says. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done." "...as long as the earth endures, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night will not cease." So so, so the first thing Noah does when his family gets off the ark is he creates or he builds a sacrifice to the Lord. He offers up many of the clean animals. If you remember, there were seven pairs of clean animals that entered the ark and one pair of unclean animals that entered the ark. And so there were plenty of animals to choose from to take some to sacrifice. Now, as a side note, but later on in Leviticus, uh, you'll start to, we'll we'll learn the difference between clean and unclean animals. We're not told how Noah knows the difference or how that actually works, uh, but he is sacrificing some of the animals that he had taken. And it says that the aroma was pleasing to... The Lord, He smells the offering, and it's pleasing to the Lord. Now, that might sound strange to you. What does that actually mean? Um, This is the first time it says this. It's going to actually say this 16 times in Leviticus when it talks more about the sacrificial system. Uh, But the word "pleasing" here uh, conveys rest and tranquility in the in the original Hebrew, and it's also related to the name Noah. In fact, if you were to read those two words in Hebrew, they would actually also physically look really, really similar. Uh, And this is again Noah's name is rest, and what it's saying is. Is this sacrifice is pleasing to the Lord that he has now brought rest to the world? Now, this is likely used here as a reminder of Lemek's words about his son in Genesis 5. And so Lemek was the father of Noah. And one of the things he said about Noah before the flood, Genesis 5, he says, This one will bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. And so, which is then what God does. He uses Noah. He then brings relief to the ground. And then he says, I will never again take punitive action against the land where people dwell. Now, when it says he's talking about undoing the curse, it's not the curse of Genesis 3, where God says it's going to be painful and hard for you to produce crops as you continue to live. But the curse here, he's saying, I will never curse the land. I will never bring death and destruction. I will never flood the earth again, which is interesting Because he even says here, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth, which again echoes closely to Genesis chapter 6 before the flood when God said that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. In other words, even though humanity has not changed in spite of our propensity towards sin, atonement through sacrifice now seems possible, that we can offer sacrifices to the Lord and he would accept them as our repentance on our behalf, that God is going to give his people a way out so they do not have to experience this flood again, that sin can be dealt with and he will never again strike down every living thing. And so uh, the first thing we see happening here is this, and that is that God gives us life. This is the story of Noah, that instead of destroying everyone for what we deserve, he takes the family, he rescues them out of his grace so that humanity can, can essentially get a restart. Now, again, the, the flood story is a uh, recreation, or it has very simil- many similarities to the creation story of Genesis 1 and 2. And so the flood story, if you will, is a recreation. That there's chaotic darkness, waters hovering over everywhere, and God's spirit dries out the land, just like in Genesis one, that there's chaotic darkness and God's spirit makes a land habitable for humanity, that we see recreation happening here, that while humans still have an inclination towards sin, God is promising that he will never again destroy all humanity. Of course, why he won't do that, even though he is loving and full of justice, is revealed through Scripture, beginning in a little bit later on in this passage. So if we are still inclined towards sin, why won't he justly bring condemnation to the world if it's deserved? Well, we're going to see why not in a few verses. And so let's keep reading verse 1. It says this of chapter 9. God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So again, if you've been with us through Genesis, these words sound familiar. Again, it's the creation blessing again. Same thing God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. However, there are a couple of distinctions in this blessing, what God's going to say versus what he says in the beginning of Genesis. What's also interesting is one of the things we've pointed out is that Genesis is not the only ancient Near Eastern account that talks about people living a very long time there being a flood, and then people's lifespans reducing after the flood. Now, of course, that doesn't prove that it actually happened. It's just sort of interesting that we have many documents that talk about this. However, one of the things we've done through this series is seen some of the unique differences between the Genesis account and some of these other ancient mythology accounts. For example, in one of them called the Autry Epic, in the in that account of the flood, it was overpopulation and in the annoyance of, huma- of humanity to the gods, which is why the gods sends the flood. There's too many people The gods were annoyed with them, and so they wipe them all out. And so to ensure that the problem doesn't occur again, after the flood, the gods reach a compromise with humanity uh, by inflicting women with infertility and sterility, high infant mortality, and artificial barrenness by cultic rituals. In other words, here are the things you should do uh, to have less kids. Now, you could say that their attempt at this, these false gods' attempt at this failed because there's 8 billion people here today, and so that might not have worked, but it's just worth pointing out, this is not what God does. Right, God loves His creation. He loves humanity. Even though we are sinful and we fall short, He delights in people who come and turn to Him. He is not annoyed with us. He must judge sin and evil, but He loves us even when we commit our evil. He is not like any of the other ancient gods that people might have come up with. And so he says, be fruitful and multiply. Then he says this in verse two. He says, the fear and terror of you, so he's talking to Noah, but of humanity, will be in every living creature on the earth. Every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground and all the fish of the sea, they are placed under your authority. Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. However, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. So uh, two distinctions in this blessing from the original creation blessing in Genesis 1 and 2. The the first is that in Genesis 1, humanity is told to rule and subdue. These are positive blessings, like be in charge, subdue the earth, rule over it. Uh, But here, a negative comment or command is introduced when it says that animals will have fear and dread of humans. Like There's going to be some conflict there. They're going to be afraid of you. Now, as a side note, we'll talk about this in a second, uh, but which animals is referred to here is actually debatable in Hebrew. Um, it could specifically, I mean, it could be saying, like, all animals are going to be afraid. It's going to be this hard, tense relationship. Or it actually could be specifically referring to wild, non-domesticated animals, particularly those that travel in herds. I'll explain why in a second. A uh, second, so, but there's going to be fear. Second, in Genesis 1, the emphasis was on eating plants and vegetation, right? God gives the plants and the fruits for the people to eat. Um, now, uh, here, now it's saying that they can eat Anything, right? The the emphasis here is on animals and meat to be eaten. Now, it doesn't say this in the text, but some biblical scholars might argue that there's some inference here that's saying that perhaps part of the mass violence and evil that was happening before the flood was due to the lack of food that people were fighting over what little there was, and so they were killing each other. But regardless, they are now told to eat mammals, or they are blessed to do so. Now, what's interesting is that they can eat animals, but not while it has the lifeblood in it, or the blood still still in it. Now, why this is a command is probably for two reasons. One, this wasn't like necessarily happen all the time, but we actually do know this did happen, at least in some instances. Remember, there's no refrigeration in the ancient world. And so we actually have accounts where people would kill animals, keep the animals alive as they would cut off their limbs so that they could eat the meat, because once the animal dies, the meat spoils thereafter pretty quickly. And so you have accounts of people keeping animals alive while they're cutting parts of the animal off so that the rest of the meat still stays fresh. And so what this is saying is the animal has to be dead. The other thing is that blood was considered the life force of humanity, of animals. I mean, even today when you see like a pool of blood on the ground from a crime scene or whatever, like you feel a certain way. It's the life force. And so it's not necessarily saying, I don't think that you can't eat blood at all. I think more so what it's saying is that the draining of the blood before the animal needs to happen as a way of returning the life force of the animal back to the God who gave it. In other words, it's, it's kind of like a respectful recognition to the animal whose life you took. What he's saying here is, be respectful of this creation. Don't be a savage. Don't eat animals like other animals do. Thank God that he has provided food for you. Now, a side note, Bible nerd question, just for a second. If you have this question, stick with me. Some people ask, does this mean that people did not eat meat before the flood? Is that what it's saying here? Or at least were they not supposed to? So Maybe people did, but like, were they not supposed to eat meat before the flood? I think it's worth pointing out that in verse 4, when it says the word everything, he's particularly talking about animals there, like I've given you everything to eat, Um, it's actually a very tricky word in Hebrew, which was the original ancient Hebrew was the language that the Old Testament was written in. Um, It's tricky because the noun and the verb form of this word that is translated everything uh, occurs 17 times in the Old Testament, and nowhere in the Old Testament is it used as a catch-all for all creatures, so when it's talking about animals. Uh, Long story short, and especially how you see this word used in other ancient documents it well, Um, it could be simply saying all animals, or it could specifically be referring here to wild animals that travel in herds, but are distinct from animals that hunt and scavenge. For example, it it could be specifically talking about animals that travel in herds that are undomesticated, like wild cattle, antelope, deer, gazelle, uh, buffalo, you know, in North American context, these wild non-domesticated animals that travel in packs. Now, why does this matter? Well, the reason why this could matter if this difference is meant to be understood is that there can be a difference between being a meat eater from domesticated animals. So let's say cows and chickens and you milk them and you use their eggs, but you also domesticate them and you, sometimes you kill them and you eat them. There's a difference between being a domesticated eat, meat eater and being a predator who is actually actively going out and hunting wild animals for food. And what could be the implication here is God is granting permission to hunt wild animals for food. He's saying all these animals, whether they're domesticated or you have to go and get them, they are food for you. It is unclear, again, the text does not tell us a lot of stuff, it is unclear whether butchering domesticated animals for food is assumed or was already previously permitted or not permitted. I mean, it doesn't actually say that. Again, uh, remember, Cain and Abel chapter 4, Abel uh, gives a sacrifice to the Lord, he kills an animal, he offers a sacrifice, but we are not told what he did with the meat that he did not sacrifice. Now again, this is my assumption, I have no idea if this is true or not, I do find it maybe hard to believe that in an ancient world where food can be scarce and hard to come by, that you would just throw out the meat, that you wouldn't actually eat it because you, want, you need all the food that you can get. It doesn't say that, but we're just not told. It could just be saying, hey, any animals that you want to go and get, you can get them, but do it in a respectful manner. The point, now the point for all that is simply this, however, what we see here in Genesis is that God gives provision. One of the other things that God is promising us in his, first, in his covenant with humanity is that he is providing and he is giving us the ability to live, right? He's saying, I have given you everything. Everything that you see is for you. I have created it for your use. And this is how you can be fruitful and multiply even in your current broken and sinful state. No life lifeblood in the animals to so do it respectfully, but this is all for you to live and to thrive. But then it says this in verse 5. And I, says God speaking, will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood by, his, by humans, his blood will be shed. For God made humans in his image. But you be fruitful and multiply, spread out over the earth and multiply on it. And so what is what God is saying here is that, that while humans can go out and hunt animals for few for food, human life because it is created in the image of God remains under protection and should not be taken. Under any reason, under any circumstance, you should not kill a fellow image bearer. The only time that God permits this or is in the exceptional case where somebody murders or out of cold blood goes and kills somebody. He's essentially granting capital punishment here because human, uh, killing another human is such a big deal. And in fact, interestingly, again, even if an animal kills a human, the animal must be held accountable. We even see this happening today, right? Like you you hear stories of somebody going hiking on a trail and maybe a a bear mauls them and they go and find the bear and they put it down or in Florida, because things always happen in Florida, like you have stories of like people getting eaten by alligators, right? And they go and find the alligator and they kill it. Like like even if the human was the one who provoked it and the alligator or whatever was just trying to like, got scared and spooked and killed them, we still go out and we kill that animal because we even know, even today, that there is something different about humanity. And so to God, to murder another human is to literally murder what is most like God. That's why it's a big deal. Uh, Therefore, those who kill with vengeance, which we've already seen happen twice up until this point in Genesis, Cain kills Abel in Genesis 4, Lamech, a different Lamech than Noah's dad, but from the line of Cain, another Lamech, kills somebody in Genesis 5, and then he boasts about it says that vengeance is mine and he should be able to do whatever he wants. What God is saying is that if you kill someone, you will be held accountable. This is not okay. This is not a good thing. You should not kill someone that I have created. Or another thing that we've seen already through Genesis and here, reemphasize here, is that God gives value to human life. It is God that gives value. Genesis 5 reiterates what is true before the sin of Genesis 1 of Adam and Eve, that people are created in the image of God. And then it says it here again in Genesis 9, that people are created in the image of God. Even after the brokenness of the sin of the fall of Genesis 3, even in our broken sinful state, every single person is still valuable. Every single human is still created in the image of God. That our broken sinful state has not changed your worth or my worth. Uh, I think, again, it seems to be why time and time again, we might be uncomfortable with how patient God sometimes is. I mean, even if you uh, maybe think of certain things that are happening today in the world, and you're like, well, why doesn't God stop it, or why doesn't God bring judgment, or why doesn't God do this thing? I think part of it might be because he loves us so much that he is patient, giving as much time as possible for repentance, for repentance, for people to know who he is. And so what we see happening here is there's also no qualification, Between what happens if you kill a person, that that all people matter. Like, it does not matter your income or your influence or your authority or your intellect or your size or your geographical location or how much money you made, that all people are created in the image of God, and therefore, all people are intrinsically valuable. Now, as much as we like that, especially in our current cultural moment, we talk about human rights and all people matter, right? Much we like that. This statement can only be true if there is a creator who says it is. It might sound good to us, but unless there is a creator who actually says this is true, it's just it's just just nice thinking. Uh, In fact, I love what Kirsten uh, Burkett says. I mentioned I shared this a few weeks ago, but I want to share it again. She talks about the reality for us, if God does not exist, here's our reality: it is not only that humanity fails to matter if there is nothing more than the natural world. Who cares? Who gets to say who's more valuable, right? She says, ironically, the natural world ceases to matter as well. It is just a collection of atoms. Some of us like our collection of atoms in the form of trees and meadows. Others prefer cars and fuel. Who is to say which is better? There is no value to be attached to the world other than what any individual cares to give it. And no individual matters than any other. It just comes down to who has the power to make their values win. doesn't matter what you think doesn't matter what I think, it just matters who has the power to say what they think meant to a reality. What God is saying here is that every single person, no matter who you are, what you've done, or even what you think about yourself are, of value, are valuable to him. That's what he says here. And then verse eight, he continues by saying this, then God said to Noah and his sons with him, understand that I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, and all wildlife of the earth that are with you, all the animals of the earth that came out of the ark, I will establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. And so again, this is the first explicit covenant mentioned by God in Genesis. Now, a covenant is a a legal contract with weight to it that formally binds two parties together on the basis of personal commitment with pretty strict consequences if either party breaks their commitment. And so here, God is promising what he is going to do, or in this case, not do, and he will never again bring about complete decreation for humanity, even if it's justified. But we've already seen that our inclination is towards sin, even towards you. Even if he is justified to do so, he is promising that he will no longer bring these floodwaters again. And then he says, here's the sign of my promise to you. Verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all future generations. I have placed my bow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy uh, every creature. The bow in the clouds and I will uh, the bow will be in the clouds. And I will look at it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all living creatures. And then verse 17, God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and every creature on the earth. And so, what happens here? And and, and he he uses what what we would call a rainbow. Now, it's worth pointing out that in Hebrew, just like in our translations, it does this correctly. um, It simply reads bow. So it doesn't say rainbow. It simply reads bow. Now, it is talking about the rainbow, but it, it reads bow, which is significant because it's a lesser degree for us today because we don't you know use bows that much unless you're like a super outdoorsy person. I don't know. Most of us don't use that. But in an ancient world, if you hear bow, you hear death. You, it's, it's, for kill, it's used for, for killing people and for hunting and for, and for war. I mean, that was all you used a bow for, was for death. Now, this is not saying, some people might say, does this mean rainbows didn't exist before the flood? It doesn't say they did or didn't, but it's not saying that they didn't either. Um, but rather, what he's simply saying is that when you see it, remember the significance I am attaching to it. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, I don't, I, when I was in eighth grade, I actually did a little, like science project on rainbows, and I don't remember anything about it, other than the fact that rainbows are actually circles. If you look for them from the, from like outer space, they're actually circles. So it's just a fun fact when people say like the leprechaun at the end of the rainbow, there is no end of the rainbow. It's a circle. So, you know, have a mother's day. I don't know if that ruins it for you. But anyway, from our perspective, however, it's a bow, right? It looks like a bow that is pointing upward. Now, uh, now, again, this is not the only time that God actually might be using something that already exists and bringing significance to it. So we'll read in a couple of weeks the covenant that God makes with Abraham and the Israelites of circumcision. We know that other nations at this time, not everybody, there were, but there are a few other nations and people groups that also practice circumcisions around the time of Abraham. God is just using this as a significant covenant reminder to Abraham and his descendants. And so what he's saying is that this symbol that you see from now on will be a reminder to you of my covenant that I will not give humanity what humanity deserves. And so again, from our perspective, you have a warrior's bow who is hung up, right? From our perspective, the bow is actually aimed up towards the heavens. It is not aimed down towards the earth. It is pointed up away from humanity and towards the heavens. And one of the things we've seen, if you've been with us, the last few chapters of Genesis, the judgment of God has been a big theme. It has been a big theme, that, that sin is so serious, and that if God is actually loving, he has to do something with evil, that God must wage war against sin and evil and destruction and wickedness, and so he has to do something about it, that he cannot let it go on forever. And so now you get this image of a bow, again, in the ancient world, think killing. Uh, for some of us, um, I think it might be helpful if, if we were to use the word gun. Right? It actually might even make us a little bit, a little bit, some of us uncomfortable because, when, again, when we think gun, we think death. But a modern paraphrase for this could literally be that God takes the gun and aims it away from humanity. That he is taking the bow, a warrior's bow, and he is hanging it up. He is aiming it away from humanity. And what's interesting is that when you read about the covenants God makes with people in the Old Testament, God always upholds his end. Even when we don't, he still upholds his end. In other words, regardless of what Noah and his descendants after and people are going to do, God is never going to do this again. He is never going to flood the earth. And so the question then for us is, what is God supposed to do with sin and evil if he has promised not to wipe humanity off the face of the earth, even if it's justified? Even though our inclination is to sin How can he still be a just God and allow it to happen? How can he still maintain his character of love and justice if his bow is not directed at humanity where it deserves? Well, the answer to this, the the ultimate answer to this covenantal promise that that we see from God here culminates in the cross of Christ. And what Jesus did for us is he's hanging on the cross in between two criminals. It says this in Luke 23. It says two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. So to be executed with Jesus. When they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals. One on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are Here, again, at any moment, at any time, God, and of course, Jesus himself could have called down the angel armies of heaven and given us what we deserve. Jesus could have come down from that cross and wiped out everybody who would crucify the Messiah, the Savior of the world. But instead, what does he say as he's hanging up on the cross? He says, Father, forgive them. He's saying, Father, give me what they deserve. He's saying, Father, fire the warrior bow of righteousness, of wrath, of judgment into me. Don't give them what they deserve. Give it to me. And here, Jesus becomes the final sacrifice to end all sacrifices, that since the time of Noah onward, animal sacrifices were given time after time as an atonement as people repented of their sins day after day in ancient Israel, and then Jesus the final atoning sacrifice. It's why Hebrews 10 says this, the last thing we'll read, since the law was only a shadow of the good things to come. The Old Testament law was pointing to our Messiah, our our Savior, and not a reality of those things. It can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? Since the worshipers, purified once and for all, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. In other words, the offered, they offered sacrifices continued because we continued to sin. In last years and last months and last weeks and even yesterday's sacrifices, while they covered the previous sins, they do not help us today. And so now we have to do it again. But then you see Jesus who has come to finish it all, that God has made good on his promise to Noah that the bow of judgment is going to be unleashed somewhere else. Not against humanity, but against Jesus, who willingly took the wrath and judgment of God on our behalf so that we can experience the kingdom of God. Judgment has fallen on the only perfect sacrifice able to take it, right? The gospel is not that you tried really hard and you did a lot of good things and you offered your sacrifices and that God accepted you. The gospel is that Jesus saved you based on his perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection. That anyone can experience the goodness and grace of God, not because of your effort, because of him, that we are saved by grace. It's something we say often as believers, right? We're saved by grace. But the question is, saved from what? To be saved means you're being saved from something. And what you and I are saved from is judgment. That's what we're saved from. A righteous judgment that we deserve. And God's the one who, makes, who pays the price. God's the one who makes atonement for us. It makes me think of the old Pentecostal preacher story of the woman who was pretty poor, didn't have much money, didn't have much food, and so every day she'd walk out on her back deck and she'd say, God, fill my pantry. God, fill my pantry. God, fill my pantry. And every day when she would walk into her kitchen and she had some pantry or some food in her pantry, she'd go back on her back deck and she said, God did it, God did it, God did it. it." Every single day, God, fill my pantry. God, fill my pantry. And every day she had food, she'd go out on her back deck. God did it, God did it, God did it. Well, one day her ACP, atheist neighbor who hated God and was so tired of her praying and worshiping this God that he says does not exist, that he came up with a plan, that he went to the grocery store, and said, I'm going to buy all this food, I'm going to show her God didn't do anything, we, I did it, like, people did it. And so he goes to the grocery store, and he goes all out, I mean, he's buying steaks and lobster and cake and fruits and vegetables, and he makes this massive spread. And one day, he waits to hear go on her back, or He waits to, she goes in her back deck, she got fill my pantry. Got to fill my pantry. Got to fill my pantry. And at that moment, he runs to her front door, rings her doorbell, knocks on the door, hides in the bushes. Well, she opens the door and sees a spread of groceries all over her front porch. She sees these groceries. She's super excited. She walks out on her deck and she says, God did it. God did it. God did it. And at that point, the guy jumps out from his bush and says, Ha, I got you. God didn't do it. I did it. I went to the grocery store to prove to you that your God didn't do anything. It was people, it was me. And at that point, she responds by looking at him. She smiles and she says, God did it. God did it. God did it. And he's like, No, 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 no. You don't understand. Your God didn't do anything. I got in my car. I drove to the grocery store. I bought the groceries. I waited for you to pray to the God that doesn't exist. And I knocked on your door. And I waited for you to open the door just so I could show you He didn't do anything. To which she responds by saying, God did it. God did it. God did it. And He made the devil pay for it. That's what He said. Now, why don't I tell that story? The grace of God, the gospel of God, is that God has done it, and he paid for it. The devil didn't pay for it. You didn't pay for it. Your parents didn't pay for it. Your kids didn't pay for it. Your reading, your Bible didn't pay for it. You're giving money to the church, didn't pay for it. You're promising to be a better person, didn't pay for it. Jesus did it. God did it. If you want to see what's in the fine print of God's covenant with humanity, it's this, that God gives grace to save us from judgment. That is what we see happening in the beginning of this covenant with Noah, all throughout scriptures, pointing to Jesus, that he gives grace, that he gives mercy, that he gives forgiveness. And it's not because we earned it, it is because he loved us. And so when we read the Noahic covenant, it's what this covenant is called, you also might be noticing something is missing. Like A covenant is supposed to be an agreement between two parties where both parties have responsibilities. But when you read this covenant with Noah, what do you see missing? What's Noah supposed to do? What is humanity's end of this bargain? And what you see, it's nothing. God does all of it. And I think this is particularly apt to share on Mother's Day, because just like a mother who gives up her body and her energy and her finances and her time for her child, this is what God is promising to us see, in Genesis chapter one, it says, God made them male and female, that both men and women show characteristics of who God is. And this image bearing quality of how a mother loves a child is what we see happening in this story and ultimately in Jesus of care and grace and of giving of himself so that we might experience a reward reward that we did not deserve. And so listen, as we hear this morning on this Mother's Day, just remember that it is God's grace, not your effort, not your promising to be better, not a future-improved version of you that makes God love you. God loves you because you are created in the image of God. You are literally an idol of God in the world, and his grace is what redeems us, not our effort.